there were parts of the city where they deployed it. Uh, there were parts of the of the county, including most of the suburbs, where they deployed it. And there are parts of the city, notably those which are lower income, where they simply didn't. You're listening to episode 290 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. In March 2017, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance and Connect Your Community released a report that analyzed connectivity and digital inclusion in Cleveland, Ohio. The report, titled AT&T's Digital Redlining, described how the company had failed to invest in specific areas of the city with some of the highest concentrations of low-income households. In this interview, Christopher talks with Angela Seifert from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance and Bill Callahan from Connect Your Community. Angela and Bill explain how they came to take on the Cleveland Project, what they've learned about digital redlining and describe what it is, and they also share some ideas to eliminate it. Angela and Bill also give us an update on what has happened in Cleveland since they released the report. Now here's Christopher with Angela Seifer and Bill Callahan. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell up in the frozen tundra of Minneapolis, where I, a Lonely Eagles fan, awaits to see what happens this weekend. Though, as you're listening to it, you will already know what happened to the Eagles and the Vikings game. Although we are are all united in opposing the Patriots. I'm coming out of my shell this year, and I'm going to be very honest about this. But to get back on track, I'm with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and today we're going to talk about digital redlining. We're welcoming back to our show a fan favorite, Angela Seifer, the Executive Director for the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Welcome back. Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to be here. And we also have with us Bill Callahan, the president and director of Connect Your Community in Cleveland. Welcome to the show. Thank you. From another part of the frozen tundra. Yes, and <laughs> perhaps even more frozen, depending on current weather patterns. So for people who are interested in digital inclusion, I hope you caught our episode 284 just a month ago, where we talked more generally about digital inclusion, digital equity, and and what all that means. Uh, Angela, do you just want to do a a very brief refresher for people as to what digital equity is and digital inclusion? We define digital equity as the outcome of individuals having access to the tools that they need to participate in society today. Uh, Digital inclusion are the activities that get us to digital equity. So digital inclusion is affordable home broadband, uh, the digital skills that are necessary today, the appropriate device, the tech support. It's all the things that um, you would think of as solutions to the barriers of uh, that which keeps us from participation. And so before we launch into too much more about how this applies to Cleveland, I wonder, Bill, if you can just tell us a a brief background of Cleveland, bring people up to speed. Um, We know the Browns had a hard season. We know the Indians have been doing well. Um, But what's happening in Cleveland otherwise? I mean, other than the fact that they're having a hard time on defense uh, in the basketball arena? (laughs) Right. Well, I guess there is that matter of LeBron James. You're right. This is apparently (laughs) going to be more of a sports podcast, which, you know, I hope some of our fans will enjoy. We haven't touched on it too much in the past. It it gets us a lot bigger audience here. Well, so Cleveland is, you know, like Minneapolis and many other central cities, uh, a place which was served for a long time primarily uh, by a Bell company and by some cable company. So the internet uh, market in the city is really shaped by what those companies have done. Uh, And depending on which uh, cities you choose to compare it with, uh, the third or the sixth worst connected uh, big city in the country, um, 
the third worst if you compare it to cities above 100,000 in the number of households. Uh, and what that means is that something like a third of all households in the city don't have any kind of internet connection at all at home, including mobile. Uh, that's a reflection of poverty. It's a reflection of you know, many folks who have not finished high school. It's a reflection, you know, a number of other factors that are commonly associated with with digital exclusion. You know, Bill, as you're describing Cleveland, I, I think I want to correct something in what I suspect most people's minds are. And they might think, well, yeah, that kind of fits. Like I think of Cleveland kind of like I think of Detroit or another city that's really fallen on hard times. But but Cleveland's really had a bit of a renaissance. I mean, there's a, a, a lot of poverty and people struggling, but the city as a whole is doing better than I think many people realize. You know, as a resident, I have the civic duty to to confirm that, but right. <laughs> I also have to say that, like most places which can claim that, the effect on the actual residents of the city is pretty limited. It's true that we have our convention center and our new convention hotel downtown. Uh, we have, you know, one successful sports team. And, you know, there's a number of other things that are not that uncommon with uh, cities of this size. We're not a particularly big city anymore, about 400,000 people. But all of that is very widely understood in the city to be have its impact only in a, you know, a few neighborhoods uh, and to have, be having very little impact on the general level, level of inequality in the city, which is among the highest in the country, according to Brookings. In terms of our work and in terms of the subject we're talking about today, all of that Renaissance stuff has very little impact on the level of people's ability to use modern tools to participate. Well, let's let's get back to that in a second and talk very specifically about the pattern of investment that we've seen. But before then, I just want to ask Angela for just a quick primer on, you know, is there anything that sets a digital redlining apart from just a, an ordinary pattern of neglect of low-income neighborhoods? The question is, how are decisions being made as to where an internet service provider is placing their resources to upgrade? So we don't know what goes on in the back room. So what we what we know is the data that says which neighborhoods have it and which neighborhoods don't. So I think this is something that that is important to have out there and be talking about because we we as a country have to decide what's okay right? If we have only a few, which is the reality in most communities, only a few internet service providers in each community, what are our expectations of those internet service providers? Should they be serving everybody? Yeah, I think it is worth noting. And I think that the the work that, that both of you did does a great job of discussing this because a lot of the services we're talking about, they have a radius. And so depending on where you put a hut or an office uh, will depend on, on those around you who are served with a, a close radius uh, being the higher quality service. And then as you get further and further away, you get lower quality service. So, so with that, I think we can ask Bill to tell us a little bit about what the pattern of investment has been in terms of neighborhoods having access in Cleveland over the past, uh, well, since the turn of the century, really? There's two providers who dominate the market. The bigger of the two is was Time Warner. It's now Charter. Uh, they sell cable service. Um, they pretty much sell it every place in the city uh, because it, the network involved was built when there was still uh, municipal franchising. And as is, as is standard, uh, the company which then owned the network was required to build it out citywide, and so it's there citywide. So great, right? 
but the other provider is AT&T and AT&T managed, did have a DSL network, which reached throughout the city. Um, DSL is characterized by, you have a basic switch in the central office. Central offices are like two miles apart and are three miles apart and close to the central office, you get a decent speed. And as you get further away from the central office, it gets slower and slower and slower. And if you're, you know, sort of as far as you can get from a central office, uh, the speed of DSL uh, gets to the point where you wouldn't want to pay for it. So that's the, the the standard historical DSL pattern, which is throughout the city. In 2008, in anticipation of building out its cable competing system, which is called Uverse, uh, which is a, a system of building fiber out into the neighborhood and then creating switches that are closer to people's homes, these uh, so-called VRAD cabinets, AT&T got the legislature to eliminate municipal franchising so that it wouldn't have to deal with pesky cities uh, in terms of where it was going to put that fiber, those VRAD cabinets, and therefore the ability to provide fast service to the nearby neighbors. And that was a, a part of a process we saw nationwide, where about half of the states over the period of several years in the mid-2000s got rid of these requirements. It also changes things like local people had no one to really complain to anymore because cities didn't really have any correct. authority. Um, AT&T made ludicrous claims in some states, and like Tennessee, they promised all this investment that never really happened, and there was no reporting requirements, so we can't really prove whether it happened or not, but it's pretty clear that the the rollout doesn't look like they promised it would be. Um, and and I don't want to jump ahead of you too much, but one of the things that I found interesting reading through your report was that um, – was that one of the impacts of that, of course, is um, people are supposed to have uh, a better service for internet, but also they're supposed to have cable competition. And many of the low-income folks never got that either. Many of the low-income folks in places which were supposedly targeted for it, like Cleveland didn't get it. Uh, and of course, parenthetically, about two-thirds of the territory of the state never even got the whiff of it because the companies in question, the phone companies never intended to provide it. <laughs> so, right. um, so essentially, yeah, we basically, uh, Ohio is the poster child for that kind of so-called cable reform. What it essentially did was eliminate regulation at any level. When it happened, plenty of people warned people in the legislature, including urban representatives like ours, look, you're inviting redlining and cherry picking. You're inviting these companies to basically pick their markets and ignore people who don't look as profitable. That is precisely what has what has happened here after 2008, when AT&T began upgrading its old DSL system uh, in order to this new hybrid system, which was combination of fiber and kind of local neighborhood switches. There were parts of the city where they deployed it. Uh, there were parts of the of the county, including most of the suburbs where they deployed it. And there are parts of the city, notably those which are lower income, where they simply didn't. Uh, there are four central offices in the city uh, which serve primarily lower-income neighborhoods, and they didn't deploy fiber for purposes of upgrades out of any of those central offices. And so the pattern then, and this all happened between the year 2008 and 2013-14. Um, so it's a, it's a rollout process that was finished a couple of years ago, uh, and um, the bottom line of it was that you had um, something like two-thirds of households in the city who didn't have access to either fast internet or cable competition. And because of that pattern of declining speed as you get away from the central offices, uh, something like 
probably a little higher, of census blocks uh, in the city have speeds below three megs from AT&T. Now, they, all, they have the option of getting cable service, but cable service from Spectrum is, you know, is a matter of uh, you know, more than $60 a month. AT&T would be the, the um, option that was a little bit cheaper and had more variety in its pricing, but that's not available to people. Now, Angela, I'm curious. We have an incredible level of detail as to how this has happened in Cleveland. Do you have the sense from your work nationally that this is an anomaly? It is not an anomaly. We, uh, we've also done maps for uh, Toledo, Dayton, and Detroit. We have some um, affiliates and partners who are working on maps in their regions. Bill is happy to explain to anyone how we did it. So if you want to create a map, <laughs> uh, this is all publicly available data. We, I think an important point that sometimes gets misrepresented um, in media articles is that we did the research on this as in gathering the data. We did not gather data. We used publicly available data uh, and, and overlaid the different data sets in order to see what's there, which anyone can do. And we highly recommend anyone to do this. Well, one of the things that I read that I don't know if it's wrong or apocryphal or not, but, you know, I'm sure you know, Bill, and I just, I found it amazing was that some of this came to light after AT&T had a discount program for low-income folks, and, and you found that they were systematically denying it to some people in Cleveland because AT&T had originally said you had to have um, a three megabit service package to get this, which generally meant they weren't going to discount their 18 megabit or their 25 megabit package. But it turned out a lot of people in Cleveland that qualified because they were low income only had 1.5 megabit service and therefore AT&T was denying it to them, which is just amazing to me. Or less or none. Yes, that is exactly the way that we that we stumbled across this. Uh, the organization that I work for, Connect Your Community, was in the process of working with a coalition of groups to um, basically to reach out to low income folks across the city um, who uh, had um, supplementary nutrition assistance, federal food assistance, which qualifies you for this AT&T access from AT&T program. Luckily, we did a little due diligence for a couple of months and uh, realized that we were getting phone calls from people saying, I applied and they told me I can't get it because I don't have fast enough service. That's what led us to look at the public data that, that uh, Angela was describing, uh, so-called uh, FCC Form 477 data. And then what we discovered was that we, you know, we had these circles of areas with um, very, very poor service. And that led us down the path of figuring out what had happened. So we didn't go looking for trouble here. We ran into trouble because when we started trying to make this service available to people, we discovered that it wasn't. And it's worth noting that that probably means that these areas were some of AT&T's most profitable in the sense that they had not invested in them for 10 or 12 or 15 years. They've been collecting money from a lot of a lot of people there for telephone and internet service and not investing anything in improving it. And so it's not a matter of they were losing money in these neighborhoods. In fact, they were probably some of their higher margin neighborhoods because they were just letting them rot effectively. Well, I, I think that's an accurate characterization. But the other thing to remember is that the fact that something is a an area is high poverty doesn't mean the majority of people in it are poor, right? It simply means that it has a high level of poverty. The areas that we looked at were areas that had a third or more of of, of households in poverty. But 
plenty of customers, uh, plenty of working class and middle class customers in those neighborhoods. Um, they tend to be African-American neighborhoods, although they're not limited to that. Um, and um, so, yes, those are those are neighborhoods which have lots of, of AT&T customers. The other thing that it's interesting to note is that AT&T charges you the same amount of money a month for five meg service or 24 meg service, right? They, they have a, mm-hmm. a price tier uh, and it, depending on what is the fastest speed they can give you, right? You know, if you've got low speed in the neighborhood, you charge the same price and basically your cost per megabit might be four or five times as high because you have crappy service. So Angela, um, is this kind of a, a pattern that you see as a national organization of pulling this information out of on the ground organizations? Yeah, so um, Chris, we started NDIA almost three years ago. We're coming upon our third anniversary, and we represent the digital inclusion programs that are on the ground doing this work, right? They're working with disadvantaged communities. And so it's an important point that the way we figured out this was happening was that um, the affiliates in Cleveland were struggling with the fact that they couldn't sign folks up for the AT&T's low-cost offer, which, side note, we were all excited about because it's great to have a low cost offer from a provider. Uh, so we were all like, rah, rah, let's sell this, uh, let's sell this low cost offer. Uh, and so and when the affiliates started trying to make that happen, they're the ones that realized there's a problem. And it took digging into a variety of data sets and Bill even like checking neighbors' addresses in the AT&T uh, data set to see what kind of speeds they could get for us to figure out what was actually going on. So I think the connection of understanding what's happening at the local level, that's how we get to some recognition of issues. So what is happening today in Cleveland? Uh, um, I know that there's um, a hush-hush pr- process going forward, but but if we simplify that, what's uh, what's happened since you found this and went public with it? There's a an attorney who, out completely outside of NDIA, um, had interactions um He knew some folks in Cleveland, and uh, one of those folks kept telling him there was a problem with her AT&T service, uh, and he told her to, you know, find some tech support. And then he saw our report and realized maybe she actually had a legitimate claim, and so started researching it and found that she did have a legitimate claim. So attorney Daryl Parks um, had submitted uh, a complaint to the FCC regarding the poor quality of service in these neighborhoods. Uh, and what is the current update of that is that AT&T and Attorney Parks are in discussions that are not public. So we know they're still in discussions, uh, but we don't know what is happening with that. Bill, is there anything you want to add to that or can I go on to start grilling you? I would only say that while we're, you know, we're really grateful that Attorney Parks and the folks he represents in Cleveland and Detroit now um, are doing what they're doing. And we hope there's some good outcome. We're not actually that wildly optimistic about the FCC. There is a potential uh, state regulatory process because this is actually income discrimination, which is forbidden by the law. And um, so it's possible that this could turn into a state political issue where this is an election year. But beyond that, I think that our assumption all along has been that probably this represents evidence of other strategies to get reliable bandwidth to people in, in low-income neighborhoods rather than trying to cure AT&T's behavior. The reason I said that I was going to grill you was because I want to ask a question that I think is is hard, and I know from personal experience with you that you can handle it. Um, but it seems to me that we have, on the one hand, obviously rules that say you can't 
screw poor people or low-income folks or more accurately low-income neighborhoods, um, um, you know. Um, but on the other hand, we have a telecommunications environment in which we have decided to say, AT&T, you can invest wherever you want. AT&T has a fiduciary responsibility to maximize its profit for its shareholders. Uh, and so in some ways, I mean, as someone who loves markets, I like bright line rules that are easy to follow that can create like real good incentives and things like that. We don't have that. Like, how do we reconcile what a company like AT&T is supposed to do in this muddy environment? Well, so let me, first of all, let me say AT&T is not the company I would have expected um, sort of on the face of their relationships within the community, which are actually pretty deep because they were a major employer in this town for a long time as, a, as Ohio Bell. I, I, I would actually expect that if any company was likely to try to go out of their way to avoid the appearance of something which, among other things, really hurts the black community, it probably would have been AT&T. The fact that they really have, re- have reacted to this whole thing with denial, even though they never denied any of the data, and the kind of universal, there's no way we can build any more fiber, says to me that really we have something that's completely out of control and that we're not going to be saved by the regulators because the regulators aren't really regulating anymore. So what's left? It's exactly what what you, Chris, and, and folks you work with are constantly saying. What's left is that local municipalities and communities start taking matters into our own hands. And I do think in the long run, creating more competition and more competitive alternatives is really the only solution to this. <laughs> You're preaching to my choir. Um, yep. <laughs> you know, so and I, I just want to follow up on that with um, a note that I pulled out from um, AT&T's um, state external affairs executive. Who cares? Her? She's a vice president of AT&T. Her name's Joan Marsh. And she said, uh-huh. we do not redline. And then she said, our commitment to diversity and inclusion is unparalleled. And then she said, our investment decisions are based on the cost of deployment and demand for our services um, and are, of course, fully compliant, da, 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 da. But it's, it's a remarkable statement to say, like, no one goes further than us to, like, to try and help low-income communities and to be diverse. Oh, and by the way, the only thing that we make our investment decision on is based on the cost of deployment and demand. I mean, those, those things are mutually inconsistent. Yes. And you will note, there's, we've seen about seven statements in various venues, specifically denying redlining, uh, which never, ever dispute a single item of fact in, in the study, which gives us great comfort that we probably haven't missed anything, but which essentially says, you know, yeah, we did that and there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, you know, if, if this were a normal regulatory environment from 20 years ago, you'd say, well, okay, let's go argue that before the regulators. But there aren't any regulators really to argue it about, you know, except the FCC. And we'll see. Uh, good luck to, to Attorney Parks. And, and again, this is no surprise to you and your, and your listeners. Probably really the only leverage people have in this situation is to take stock of the situation, realize what we're dealing with, and figure out how to, how to take our own steps to, to fill in the gaps. And uh, beyond that, honestly, we're continuing to use AT&T's discount service where it, where it makes sense. And, and uh, we'll continue to take advantage of every opportunity we have to get low-income folks 
affordable service because that is the point. Right. And I'd like to reiterate that because, Angela, you made that point a little earlier that even though we're very frustrated with companies like AT&T and the investment plat patterns, um, many of us are frustrated with some of the decisions Comcast makes, um, regular price increases and things like that. It still makes sense for people to go out, perhaps volunteer their time to try to spread the word that people that are facing hard times, households that are struggling, may be qualifying for $10 a month service or less uh, from these firms, right? Yes, absolutely. Multiple internet service providers have low cost offers. I really think it's one of those um, deals out there that the majority of the population who is eligible has no idea that this is even a thing. Uh, so we really need to do more promotion of those offers. And they are solid deals. Uh, the one from Charter is $15 a month. And uh, Bill, correct me, I think it's 30 meg. So 30 megs. Yeah. So it is that that's a really solid offer. Yeah, it's almost as good as uh, $10 a month for 50 megabit symmetrical in Wilson <laughs> with the municipal network that's leading the pack. Right. <laughs> yes, we, yes. The of difference course. is that it'll be gone in two years. The charter one. That's the question is Internet Essentials is still around. We don't want to be have the view that we are coming down on all the internet service providers. We are certainly not. We have positive relationships with most of them. We want them to understand that we do appreciate these low-cost offers, and we want those offers to continue beyond the time that they are required to provide them with, based upon their agreements with the FCC. So, so that it is in no way a negative. We don't want this to be viewed. We use the term redlining to describe this, and we we do that for a very specific reason that does have to do with the history of that term, namely a way of describing what banks have done in similar neighborhoods in the past. And what it specifically refers to is the fact that you have a strategic decision by an institution not to offer certain services that are important to a community because of that community's economic or racial characteristics. That's redlining. It's, a, it's not something bigger than that. It's, it's, it's obvious, explicit policy decisions not to invest and offer services in specific places. Well, there was a big national fight about bank redlining in the 60s and 70s, and the consequence was something called the Community Reinvestment Act. And the Community Reinvestment Act has led to a lot of bank initiatives to figure out how to offer useful products to people in those neighborhoods in order to avoid regulatory sanctions, right? Those regulatory sanctions have led to a large, deep industry of community reinvestment-driven relationships between banks and communities. There's nothing that would prevent AT&T from following that model. How would AT&T, understanding that it has gotten in trouble because of its investment strategy in a bunch of communities, Go out and say, good, let's work with the community. Let's look, work with the city government. Let's figure out how we can work together to fill in these gaps that we've helped create, right? That's what the banking industry largely has done with some awful exceptions recently, right? But, but that's the history. And it, but it means that you basically have to say, yeah, we, okay, we get it. We have a problem here. Let's vary what we do and build a response to the market so that we can serve these people. And the, the discount program, Access from AT&T, isn't exactly that. It's something that they negotiated with, you know, because of the merger uh, with, with the FCC. But it does actually have a really important and constructive place in the market 
if, if they were still Ohio bound, paying attention to the state of Ohio, for example, um, we might, in fact, be able to work that out with them. The fact that, you know, local representatives may be sympathetic, but there's nothing they can do is essentially uh, a product of the fact that you have an international corporation that isn't making decisions that have anything to do with local needs. You know, we take what we can get, but there certainly are paths, I think, for telecom providers to do better. And they can just look at the banking industry to see how. That raises a number of points that I'd love to make that are all really great. And we're going to come back to you with what I think is a is a hard question. But um, one point mm-hmm. is that the banking industry is increasingly using um, the Community Revitalization or Reinvestment Act, I always get it wrong, um, to um, invest in broadband in um, historically challenged areas or a higher um, yep. jobless areas. I forget exactly what the the qualifications are. But we've seen that in uh, Minnesota uh, with the RS Fiber Project in Bozeman, Montana. And there's more projects coming online where banks have been involved uh, because of the history of redlining. Um, Second point is, I I think you did a really good job of identifying how the redlining is happening. It's a term I've sometimes seen tossed around carelessly by some, and I think we need to avoid doing that. Um, Here in Minneapolis, we have a small private company which is investing and has a vision for connecting all of Minneapolis and some people have accused them of redlining. But when I've talked to them, they've said that their best customers are the the, are the working class neighborhoods. And not only that, but the largely immigrant neighborhoods, because um, the the recent immigrants in particular, they do everything online. And they're, they're talking to families back home, their translation, all their entertainment. Um, there's so much of it. So, um, you know, I think it, it, harm, it hurts me when I hear them accused of redlining when I don't see it. I see a company that's trying to figure out how to expand and they happen to start in one particular area. Um, but we can we can always come back to that later. That's USI. We've talked with them in the past. But the question that I want to pose to you and Angela is in some ways, like, you know, as as a person who fundamentally believes that AT&T cannot be fixed, that we need to bring competition to AT&T fundamentally in order to force it over a period of many years, I think, to reform itself into being a company that is not a monopoly. It still has a monopoly mindset. It operates in many ways without competition. Um, I look at what's happening at Cleveland, and I think the best possible result is actually sort of irrelevant to AT&T because in some ways – an okay result would be that AT&T invests more in those communities. But then those communities are still stuck with a company that has a history of slow investment, has high prices, maybe violating net neutrality on a regular basis very soon, probably has bandwidth caps, um, all kinds of other problems. I think cities should be looking at Cleveland and not thinking, not limiting themselves to thinking we need to fix AT&T's behavior in, in neighborhoods that have a high poverty rate. But they need to think, we need to figure out a different solution here. That's our conclusion. <laughs> You're speaking our mind. We don't think we're going to fix AT&T. That's unfortunate because we'd love to. But even if we did, un- there's an underlying problem, which is that there are two major providers and neither of them runs an open network. And so we've gone from a situation in 1999 where we had essentially 40 competitors providing ISP services to a situation now where we have two. There are two historical approaches. I'm I'm an old utility organizer, right? So two historical approaches to a monopoly or near monopoly in the public realm. One is regulation and the other is competition, which if you in in most cases means build it yourself. We have public power systems and we have public utility regulation, right? Those are the two models. 
And for people who are interested, read a biography of Tom Johnson, famous mayor of Cleveland, yep. where we dealt with a lot of these That's issues right. 100 years ago. Who Exactly. And it's precisely true that it was the same kind of issue. And so, you know, that's kind of the situation we're facing. Um, there are people have are, are developing lots of different mixtures of approaches to it across the country, and we're paying attention to all of them. So, Angela, I'm curious if you have a, um, a, a reaction to my mini rant. I, I just feel like I'm being too casual with AT&T. I think your point that it, whatever we solutions we come up with are going to be years in the making is the relevant point. Right, that we can't throw AT&T away right now because we need them. So we need them to step up in whatever way they can figure out to step up. Um, but if the community determines, as Bill thinks the community is determining, that there needs to be an alternative, um, that is going to take some time to get there. Great. Are there any final points before we wrap it up? No, I, I think that was great. I very much appreciate drawing attention to the issue, Chris, because it's something that needs to be discussed. Well, with that, let's sign off. And let me just remind people one more time that 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 Bill is very open to teaching people how to do this. This is something there's great value in doing. Uh, it's replicable. And, um, you know, if you listener aren't going to do it, who will? So thank you very much, Bill, for coming on the show to share with us what you did in Cleveland. Thanks for the chance, Chris. And thank you, Angela, for coming back to talk more digital inclusion with us. Anytime. That was Christopher with Angela Seifert from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance and Bill Callahan from Cleveland's Connect Your Community. Don't forget to check out the full report titled AT&T's Digital Redlining. You can download a copy at NDIA's website, digitalinclusion.org. We also have a link at muninetworks.org. We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. We hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you, Arnie Husby, for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed to Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to Episode 290 of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast.